This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Well, is the 12-gauge slug gun an option for deer hunting? (laughs) Boy, howdy! And we're going to find out on this episode of Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Hey, we got a great question here from Lone Wolf who asked about that 12-gauge slug gun. He said, you talk a lot about rifle cartridges. No doubt about that. (laughs) It's kind of my favorite. But how about slugs for a 12-gauge? How do you feel about hunting with a 12-gauge and slugs? Well, I tell you what, personally, I don't enjoy hunting with 12-gauge and slugs simply because I don't like the feel of a big 12-gauge shotgun for precision shooting. It's personal thing, but with a rifle, I think precision shooting, unless it's, say, a really big, bore dangerous game rifle, and those are still surprisingly precise. Gosh, I had a 375 uh, H&H by Park West Arms last September in Africa. That thing would shoot MOA or better. <laughs> but uh, I think you get my drift with the 12 gauge. It just doesn't feel like a rifle, even if you have a rifled barrel and you're shooting Sabo slugs and stuff. You can do quite well with them. Now, there's no doubt that they hit like a hammer. They do hit pretty darn hard. I mean, that is a big 0.729 inch diameter slug going down. And how many of us shoot rifles of that diameter? Rifle cartridges don't generally reach 0.729 inches in diameter. So you've got an awfully big slug. And it's not moving all that fast, but again, it has momentum. The sectional density of a slug is not all that high, but it's definite deer killer. It's just not my cup of tea as far as the enjoyment of carrying it and using it, but certainly as effective on deer at 100 yards, 150. And with some of the rifled barrels and new slugs, and especially the sabos, there are guys who can routinely hit their targets at 300 yards if they know their ballistics and everything. And some of the the new um, bullets, shall we say, the slugs, um, one of the ones I'm thinking of, I did a video on them years ago. They're steel, 
They're called duplex, but they're spelled weirdly. It's two Ds, D-D-U-P-L-E-X or K, duplex. Look them up, check them out, because they are really devastating. There's one they call the steelhead, which is a steel slug, wasp-waisted, as I recall, with a nylon rim around it, so your rifling is actually grabbing the nylon and not that steel slug, so you don't have to worry about the steel-on-steel contact. And then it's pretty high ballistics coefficient for that thing. And it just shoots through everything. I think I shot through eight or nine milk jugs with that. And then they have a version that expands. And oh my gosh, talk about devastating. That'll put a hole in something. So there are a lot of great options out there for slugs. And they're so good, actually, that a lot of guys who are in slug states or like to shoot slugs, period, are going to 20 gauges to reduce the recoil. And they're being just as effective. So absolutely nothing wrong with slug guns if you enjoy them. And a lot of people will carry them up in Alaska for bear protection. A lot of the fishing guides will have one. I've been out many times with guides who have a an 870 usually in the boat, uh, loaded up and ready for bear. So yeah, that's worth considering. All right, here is um, Clay asking about, looks like soft paw here. <laughs> left-handed rifles. Hey, Mr. Spomer, I have a question. Four of my family members shoot left-handed. It <laughs> must be genetic. Why are left-handed rifles not as readily available in common places, or am I looking in the wrong place? Thanks for your great videos and podcasts. You're incredibly informative. Well, thank you for that, Clay. I hope I'm incredibly informative on this one, but I don't think I'm going to have a real good answer for you, other than the reason you don't find a lot of left handed built guns is because there's so few people demanding them. I don't know what the percentage of the population who are South Paws is. It's something under 20%, I believe. So the manufacturers are always going for volume and they're going to make some sales. And the easiest way to do it is to set everything up to make a product that's going to fit the greatest number of people. And that's part of the reason why the 308 cartridge is so successful. You know, it's not the fastest, it's not the slowest, it's not the biggest, it's not the smallest. It's just at that sweet spot, right in the middle. I've called it the Goldilocks cartridge many times. I know some people who read my anti-308 articles aren't going to believe it. <laughs> but I honestly must admit that it really is a do-all cartridge, just not hyper-grand in any one category. So, yeah, you're kind of stuck with very few rifles from which to choose, except you can do darn well with any rifle that has a tang safety and is an auto loader um, or a single shot and a lot of lever actions. You may be looking at some of the ejecta, the, the empties coming out past your face. Uh, but then we had top-loading rifles that ejected straight up like the old Winchester 94s and such. There wasn't any problem with that either. And then there are a lot of lefties who just learn to shoot with right-handed actions, and darn well. I was at a shoot with Craig Boddington one time, and Craig is a lefty, but he's always shot right-handed rifles that he grew up with. And he has learned how to control that rifle, reach over, and run that bolt so quickly that we did, I think it was a five-shot on-target shoot-around. And I only beat him by a half-second or maybe a second on that shooting. And he, and I'm a right-handed shooter running the bolt, and he was lefty. So he has really learned how to do it. So there there is that option. But if you're looking for the lefty guns, I, the first place I would start is with each manufacturer. I know Savage makes them. 
Ruger sometimes does and or maybe still does. Not as often the other brands. I think Remington had some for a while. Ooh, saying Remington reminds me there's also the uh, slide action Remingtons. I think they're the model 7600s. You might want to look at those too. But yeah, I I'm, I hear you. I'm not a lefty, but I hear from enough Southpaws to complain about this. And I understand it's a problem. Unfortunately, I mean, you're like, you're sort of like the guy who has a size 16 foot. You're not going to find a big selection of shoes. <laughs> so uh, more power to you. If you find anything that really strikes you as uh, the grand option and want to help out some of the other left-handed shooters, let us know about it or report on it here or in one of my other YouTube channels. That would be great. All right, here's a fellow named Tim who's hunting in uh, Indiana, it looks like. I plan on hunting deer here in Indiana next fall with a new rifle. I've yet to buy, so he hasn't got it yet. I bet he's looking for one. I'm going to use the 350 Legend in a bolt gun, probably, and it'll probably be a Ruger with a 16-inch barrel or something with a short barrel so that it's lightweight and handy. I'll be hunting from the ground, and I'll probably never shoot past 100 yards. Unless I happen to have to shoot across a field, that would maybe be 200 yards. The question is, what power scope should I mount on the rifle? Oh, shoot. I was getting all ready to answer some of your cartridge questions here, and now it's just a scope. <laughs> what power scope? I'm thinking something at 1 to 4 or 2 to 6, and it's sighted in at 100 yards, and again, never shoot past 200. I'll also probably keep the scope on its lower power unless the deer is really far away. And also, what about a red dot? All right. You're on the right track here, I think, Tim, all the way around. Um I like especially that you're going to keep your scope on low power. Too many of us, and I've been here myself, I'm speaking from experience, we get all enamored of our new big powerful scopes and we crank them up to look at stuff and we crank them up to shoot and practice and whatever, and we end up leaving them at high power and we go hunting and the deer gets up at 20, 40 yards and we've got a 15 power scope. <laughs> and then we try to dial it down in time and the deer gets away. I always say, and I'm sure any veteran hunter will back me up, carry your gun on one of its lower settings or low west. And I always do well at 4X. I rarely use 2.5, even though I have a lot of scopes that are that low. But I have never had any trouble getting a deer or even a coyote or even an elk in my scope, sights on the sticking place at 4 power. You've got a surprisingly wide field of view. But if you really, really want it to be wide, crank her down to three or two and a half or whatever you've got. Just don't carry it at 10x because chances are if you need 10x, that animal's so far away, you'll be able to dial that scope all you want. He's not going to see you do it and you'll probably have time to do it as well. Even if you don't have time because the animal is running, you probably don't want a running shot when you need 10 power to make that shot. So good there. Now, as for one to four, I wouldn't recommend it because I just... I see no use for a 1X scope in hunting. It just There's no magnification. The critter looks darn far away, and I don't see any advantage to it. I mean, like I said, I can get all my deer in the scope at four power. So why do I want to fool around with a one? Two to six, I think you're getting closer. Six power is plenty. A lot of us old timers found over the years that a 6X scope, fixed power, would cover everything, including those closer range shots. And then you get out there to three, 400 yards, six works just fine if you learn to shoot with it that way. You don't have to have that target filling the whole viewfinder in order to put a crosshair on the sticking place. But, of course, these days, you've got so much option in your scope powers that you might as well get a really nice variable that'll cover the waterfront for you. Two to six for what you're explaining, sounds perfect. 
That sounds perfect. Go to two and eight. You can't find many two to sixes, but two to eights, two to eight and a half, or even two to tens, pretty common. Obviously, the larger powers, you're going to end up with a bigger scope. You want to keep your weight down and everything, especially on a 16-inch rifle. And not just weight, but length. Look around. Some scopes, have they're pretty long for the same power range as the ones that are a little bit shorter. Find something that balances nicely for you, and I think you'll be more than happy with that. Now, I will say something about that 16-inch barrel for short and handy. Yes, it will be short and handy, but it might also be a little bit butt-heavy, which makes it a little harder to keep on target. I have found over the years that if I have a rifle in which the muzzle just is a little bit tipping the balance point toward the muzzle, a little bit muzzle-heavy rather than the weight back in the butt, it's easier to keep that muzzle on target. You don't find that it wobbles around as much. Whereas if it's a real short, light barrel and you're wiggling back here, the axis of the movement makes that barrel move a lot more. So you might want to look at an 18-inch or 20. To me, a 20-inch is about all I need for a short, handy rifle. And I've done really well with my 22 inches all along. And the other thing with a short barrel is the muzzle blast. Oh, my gosh. My wife and I both hate that. She made the mistake of setting off a 708 with an 18-inch barrel and forgot to put her earplugs back in, and her ears were ringing for days. So you want to be careful with that stuff. Ah, good luck with you, and enjoy that scope. Now let's see what questions uh, the gang came up, came up with here on the electronic media. Here is one from James. James is from Wisconsin. Howdy to Wisconsin. Says, I have... The AGM Rattler, I don't even know what that is. AGM Rattler, is that a snake? <laughs> TS35-384 Thermal. Whew. So we're, I got it figured out now. We're talking about a scope. <laughs> I have a thermal scope and I need help signing it in. The manual doesn't explain it very well. Do you have any info on this? Well, as you can guess from what I've said so far, I'm clueless, man. <laughs> I really don't, but I will say this. Almost anything you buy these days does not come with a good manual in instruction. You have to go on their website and figure it out or download something. So that is what I recommend. Go to this AGM's website and punch in the scope that you have. And I'll bet they will have, if not the written instructions there, they'll have videos on how to do it, which can be pretty nice. I do watch a lot of these how-to videos on YouTube and they can really help. Everything from fixing something on my old tractor to, uh, well, just about anything you want to do. So check that out, and I think you'll find the answer. I'm sorry I didn't have it for you, but you blew one right past me with the AGM Rattler TS35384. <laughs> okay, here is someone from Minnesota right next door to Wisconsin. They're probably cousins, and this guy's name is Joe. Joe coming from James, coming from Wisconsin to Minnesota, and he is asking about, can you show side-by-side -side comparison of a rifle built in the 30s and the 50s to what you can go to the store and buy today? and maybe educate some folks about the quality of older guns. I personally would rather spend my money on some of the great rifles of the past on the used market. There are lots of unbelievable quality rifles available on used gun racks at gun shops and gun shows that, if built today with the same high-quality materials and craftsmanship, would cost way more than most of us could or would be willing to pay for. Yet, for just about any budget, there's something available that far exceeds the quality of what's being offered now from most manufacturers. Thanks, Ron. Hmm. 
I'm not so sure I will absolutely agree with you on this one, Joe, but I get what you're driving at. They did have, as a rule, better materials back in those days, primarily because they weren't using all the new plastics. Uh, Not there's all that much wrong with the new plastics. I mean, obviously, if you can pick up a, say, a, a starter rifle from Ruger or Mossberg or Savage or most companies for somewhere between $300 and $500, 600 top end. In today's money, that represents a sizable chunk of money back in the day. Yet these modern rifles will pretty consistently shoot minute of angle with factory ammunition. And we didn't see that back in the 30s and through the 50s or the 60s. I mean, we had to struggle to get a rifle to shoot MOA in those days. So even though the good, solid walnut stocks with a little bit of figure in them were standard and they had good bluing and big, strong actions and stuff, I really don't think the quality is going that that much unless you're just looking at the absolute basement bargain rifle. And then you can make some complaints, and I will join you on that with a lot of those Tupperware stocks, the Mattel toy stock kind of rifles. They save a lot of money by using those molded plastic stocks. But, you know, you don't have to buy those. You can upgrade. You can get a rifle that has a better quality stock. And, of course, not all synthetic stocks are chintzy. There's some really durable, heavy-duty, strong, and lighter weight than wood synthetic stocks of various kinds out there. And then you've got the carbon-wrapped barrels now, which I think can be an improvement in many regards. So while I appreciate your appreciation for some of the older rifles of the day, and and they'll stay around for a long, long time, they've got durability on their side, that's for sure. I can't agree that what's being offered today are way under that kind of quality. And then again, you can get high-quality custom rifles or semi-custom rifles that are built the old way. Just because the modern rifles have all the new whiz-bangs doesn't mean you have to get one that way. And once again, I'm going to Park West rifles because I've just got a couple of those. Kimber's another good one where you can get a a walnut stock. Um, And you can upgrade from some of the um, brands like Boyd Stocks and some other stock companies that do have drop-in wood stocks and things like that. So, yeah. A legitimate complaint, and I do like the old guns. In fact, when I was reading this, I was thinking, gee, don't tell everybody this. You'll drive the prices up. (laughs) I like to go into the used gun stores to see some of those inexpensive prices, but gosh, even today, it's hard to find those. Uh, Most guys know that an older gun like that does have a considerable value because they are so rugged and durable. I don't think they're going to shoot quite as well as far as accuracy as the new ones, but boy, it, it sure is. It just feels good to grab a 1950s era, say, Model 70 or uh, Remington from the early 60s to mid-70s and before they started getting kind of schlocky in their tolerances and whatnot. But, gosh, a lot of great guns out there, especially the old lever actions. Those are the ones that really get me going. All right, Joe, thanks for your opinion on this one. I hope I didn't... uh, Step on your toes too much with my counter opinion, but I think we need to consider all aspects of this and and face the reality. There's as little of everything out there these days, and the neat thing is we can all find what works for us. All right, this is from Mr. Anon Imus, Anonymous, from North Carolina. If that gives anything away, my cousin in New York, New York, my cousin in New York wants a bull action hunting rifle. Well, good for him. 
He wants to use it for whitetails and other similarly sized animals. Good. He has also expressed concern for home defense, and he wants it in a caliber suitable for semi-autos for later in the future when he's in a more semi-auto-friendly state. Should he get a 308 win and eventually get an AR-10 and possibly an AR-15 for home defense or a 6mm ARC or get an AR-15 upper receiver for hunting and a different upper? Oh boy, he's got all kinds of options here. Well, if he wants to get into the AR-style rifles, I would get there right away. But then if he's in New York, they probably won't let him hunt with it, right? Or maybe even own it. So I don't think it's all that important for him to stick with the same cartridge. If he gets, uh, say, a, a bull action rifle now, or even a lever action or a slide or anything else in a particular cartridge, he doesn't have to use that cartridge for everything unless he's really trying to save his pennies and maybe buy a bunch of ammo in bulk at a good price and then knows that he's going to have it in the future, then he probably would. Or if he's going to get a hand-loading kit and buy the dies and everything. But shoot, if you got the hand-loading kit, all you have to do is buy the die for the new cartridge. That's really most of what you need to get to change things up. So that's not very expensive. So again, I don't think I would worry too much about the cartridge matching up with the gun he gets now for New York versus the one he gets later for a state that's auto-friendly. Um, so, yeah, 308 really in an AR-10 is hard to beat. I would, again, I always prefer the 708 and even the 260. It doesn't have quite the versatility in bullet sizes, but they're ballistically more efficient. Not that it amounts to a heck of a lot. And as my 308 lovers always tell me, you're not going to feel the difference and the animal isn't going to feel the difference. It's only on paper that they're different. <laughs> which is largely true. It's largely true, but that 7mm 08 is just remarkably efficient and can pretty much do anything the 308 can do. But that's just me. If he wants to get the 308 in an AR-10, be a good way to go. And then if he insists on a lighter, shorter AR-15, yeah, the 6mm ARC, but I think for deer, I would probably get that in the hammer. That 300 hammer is pretty darn good option in an AR. But hey, good luck on that one. Choosing is always difficult, especially if you think you're going to get one or two rifles to serve multiple purposes. You have to really watch your P's and Q's and make a decision. So have him continue to research, do a lot of study, and it's always easier to put more time into research and less time into regretting what you purchased and then having to sell it and get something else. All right, Michael from Arkansas, not only Arkansas, but Western Arkansas. And maybe they make a distinction in that state. It's Cowboy West and Easterners East. I don't know. We should do that in South Dakota. East River, farmers. West River, cowboys. <laughs> I was a farmer. All right. What have you got for a question here, Michael? Ron, thanks for helping me keep current without needing to buy everything myself. <laughs> Living vicariously through my mistakes, are you? <laughs> hey, can you tell me about scopes? I just finished a custom blued Remington 6.5 by 284. Ooh, good cartridge. And it's in a nice wood stock. I want a nice blued scope for it. But I just found out that nobody makes one. Is there a source for older loopholed, say, 4 to 12 by 40 scopes? Or do you have any thoughts? Well, my first thought is, what do you mean they don't have blued scopes? But I think what you mean is shiny blued scopes, right? Because I'm seeing all kinds of matte blued scopes. 
Um, but they do come in different shades. And if you're trying to match up the, the color balance just right, that is a bit of a challenge these days. I have noticed that. You're getting a lot of gray scopes, gunmetal gray scopes, even the silver scopes to match up with stainless. And of course, everyone's now offering Cerakoted finishes of various colors and camouflage patterns. And yeah, it's getting complicated, isn't it? So I think Leupold still does offer a few in the um, shiny blued finish to match your barrel. And I also think that they might offer them as a custom. You could say, hey, guys, I'd like this scope, but could you make it a shiny blue? They might do that for you. They do a lot of custom options. You might want to check in with that. After that, you're just going to have to really dig. I don't know. I used a lot of Swarovski scopes, and I'm not even remembering if they were shiny or not. I doubt it. They are blued, but I think it's a dull, sort of a satin-finished blue, which I like because I don't like shiny blues on my rifles. A lot of hunters are afraid of the glare. I don't know that glare has ever cost me an ammo or anything, but it's something we think about. I don't like glare when I happen to just hit the sun just right, and it flashes up in my eyes. So... um that's why I like the, the softer finishes. But check out the custom options with any scope maker. Just ask them if they can't maybe put it in a scope with a blue finish for you that's shiny or whatever you need it to be. All right. Good luck with that one. Sorry I didn't have a definitive answer for you. All right. This is Robert. Looks like we're going to a 270 here. Robert's from Minnesota. I received a 270 Tika from my father. I don't need another 270, but I want to utilize the gun. I, I reload. I was thinking of 25-06 AI. would like to shoot light grain bullets, but I would also like to try heavier, longer bullets. What twist should I rebarrel to? All right, so the 270, I don't think, uh, pertains here. It's the 25-06 he's interested in. wants to shoot a longer bullet, fast twist barrel. Would I need a 1-8, one, one to eight, an 8-inch eight twist rate, or a 7.5 to be able to shoot the Lighter grain bullets. I think you mean the heavier grain bullets. Hmm. A little bit confusing here for me, Robert. But here's what I can tell you. 25-06 has never really been set up for handling longer bullets than about 120 in the uh, traditional format. Not a long, sleek, secant ogive and a long 11-degree boat tail. But the more traditional stuff. After that, Wobble City. But there are brands coming out now with longer bullets, and the latest one is a Hornady. I think it's 134 grain, getting some pretty high BCs, which has been needed by the 25s. And I've talked about this, especially last year on a few broadcasts. I talked about the need for the 25s to come into the 21st century with some longer high BC bullets. And they're finally doing that. The first one out was an Ace Blackjack, 131 grain. I don't think they're making those anymore. Uh, but that kind of got things started. And now hammer bullets, these are the all-copper bullets I really like. They've got some fairly long ones. And, you, of course, you know for copper, you can't go as long because they're not as dense. So the weights are going to be different, but they have some really long ones. Um, who else had a long one I saw recently? Oh, man, it might have been Badlands Precision or something. But at any rate, they're out there. So you're going to want to use them in your 25-06. What do you need? I got a 25-06 Ackley Improved chambered uh, with a barrel that's seven and a half twist. But I have not gotten my butt up to the reloading room to work with it. I fire formed some brass and was really impressed with the accuracy, but I haven't loaded up the long bullets. Now, I got a few from Hornady. I've got a little pack of the old blackjack so I can get started. As soon as the weather clears and the snow melts a little bit, I can get going on that one. But I think you're going to need a seven and a half inch twist on these new high 
BC bullets. I would recommend you go to the Hornady website, look theirs up and see what they recommend for your minimum barrel twist rate. I'm guessing it's going to be seven and a half, but it might be eight. But I never hesitate to err on the side about just a bit more twist to make sure. And if you really are concerned about lighter grain bullets, I don't think you need to worry. I've discussed this before in broadcasts. I have not found that a fast twist barrel is going to screw up your lighter grain bullets unless they're real thin jacketed and could spin apart. But as far as being accurate, they've always been plenty accurate enough for me. All right, good questions on uh, 25-06 and some longer bullets. Carter Haas, a question about Remington. He's from North Carolina, and he says, will Remington be coming out with a new 360 Buckhammer? Oh, yes, they will. Uh, how do you feel? Will it do uh, what the 3030 does and the 350 Legend? Do you think it will take off or fall flat? Thanks. Yeah, they're coming out with the Buckhammer, by golly. And it's the 3030 reshaped a little bit, straight-walled, the 35. Even they call it the 360. This was these companies have always done. Come up with a clever name that doesn't really specifically identify any of the dimensions of the cartridge. <laughs> so the 360 buck hammer is so close to the 350 legend. I think it might do 30 to 50 feet per second more velocity with the same bullets. Um, but it has a rim and that a lot of people are excited about because rimmed cartridges, of course, are standard fodder for the lever action rifles. So you should be seeing lever actions chambered in it. And I already have seen one. Uh, I don't know if it was a prototype or not, but it was at the SHOT Show. And it was a Henry chambered for the 360 buck hammer. So essentially, guys are going to be going to the woods with, with roughly a 35 Remington in a lever action again. Um, so, yeah, expect pretty much the same performance as you'd get from a 350 Legend or a 3030. And the buck hammer, I think, will take off I, just because of that ability to put it in the lever actions. I would guess that Marlin would be coming out with one here fairly soon too. They're coming out with, they come out with a 3030 here in a few months. And I would guess that a 360 buck hammer would be in the line pretty quickly too. And probably the 35 Remington could come back with some of these. I think, I think I heard that Henry was chambering that one or, or maybe thinking about it, or maybe it was just wishful thinking. Always worth digging into that stuff to find out what's going on. Okay. Here is one from Brian. In Indiana, and it's about hunting. What's the best Western state for a combined mule deer and pronghorn hunt? Oh boy, that's a good one. You know that is a uh, a question that takes me back to my younger days when I was looking for maximum bang for my buck. If I'm going to go through all the time and effort to go out west hunting, I want to be able to hunt as many things as I can because you know darn well you're going to see some mule deer in the same field as a pronghorn or awfully close by. And in many cases, whitetail, maybe elk. It's just, wow, you want to be able to really take full advantage of being out there, right? So great question. Unfortunately, so many states now have separated their hunt, so you can't do that anymore. And you could say, well, it's for biological reasons, but no, really, it's for getting you to come out there and spend more money. <laughs> I mean, that's my take on it, guys. They don't like you coming out in one fell soup and filling your tags for everything. They'd rather have you come back, eat some more food, buy some more gas, stay in a restaurant, in a hotel, whatever. <laughs> I'm guessing that's what's going on because there are not many states in which you can do that anymore. And the other challenge, I think, is the season length. 
They've had to shorten a lot of them up because there's so much hunting pressure. But it's still possible. I have not looked at all the regulations. They change so often. But as far as a state that has the potential, Montana, um, Wyoming, that's the top pronghorn state. And then right on down the line, you can get the eastern edge of Idaho, the uh, probably New Mexico. Gosh, I've, I've seen some good pronghorn and mule deer together in New Mexico. Texas, yeah, all those western states are about in the same boat on all of them. Um, it's just challenging to get the hunts to line up at the same time and get those tags. Gosh, I think they've even gone to tags for all the pronghorn hunting in Wyoming and I don't think it was 10, 15 years ago, you could go to Wyoming, buy a tag and start hunting, in many cases, buy a couple of extras. But they've fallen on hard times there. You know, game populations go in cycles. We don't just drive the population up to, say, 2 million and then stay there. You know, the weather hits, the drought, floods, fires, you name it. So you've got to be able to be flexible in your management and pull back from time to time. And that's what's happening across the West right now with mule deer and pronghorn. So you're going to have to really study things and uh, make an application in these different states. And another consideration is you might have to get a pronghorn in one state, step across the line to get your mule deer in another state. That's another way to balance that stuff out. And a lot of these Western states, you can do that. I mean, it, I've done it in Montana and Wyoming. You get a mule deer tag in one, you drive 10 miles across the border and hunt pronghorn in the other one. So a couple ways to do it. Good luck. I know it's exciting thinking about it. That first hunt out west is a special occasion. I'll never forget my first one to Montana back in the mid-1970s. Man, did we have a blast. All right, Mr. Sebastian, is this our last one? Yeah, they're telling me I'm running out of time here, guys. So we're going to see if we can quickly answer a question from Sebastian. And he's from Australia. We always like to hear from our Aussie friends. Hey, Ron, I hope you're doing well. I am, sir. Thank you. Soon I'll be buying a 308 rifle to hunt pigs and deer. All righty. Um, I've already bought some 150 grain interlocks. That would be the Hornady interlock bullet and some SSTs. That's another Hornady bullet. I've heard that the SSTs can break apart. Some saying almost like a VMAX. So I was wondering what your opinion is. If STs are good enough for hunting red deer and sambar, as well as large pigs, thanks heaps. I always like to hear your take on anything hunting related. Yeah, I would, between those two bullets, I would go with the um, interlock. It's just a little more solidly built. It's got that rim of jacket material on the inside to help hold the lead core in. The SST, I don't think has that, but you want to double check because they sometimes upgrade things and I'm remembering from old stuff. But I have found shooting the SST, I shot it once uh, considerably in South Africa with a seven rim mag. And the closer shots, say inside of 200, 150 yards for sure, and in, those bullets were breaking apart pretty badly. But beyond that long range, they were pouring beautifully. I remember shooting a Kudu bullet 330 yards, and I put two shots in the heart about this far apart. So I remember I measured it, it was like one's the top of the heart, one's more to the bottom, three inches apart. And they both lodged against the skin on the other side of the shoulder, and they were both looking like a picture out of a advertisement just beautifully mushroomed and all there yet of course they had lost a lot of weight they always do with eroding even if they don't break apart that the lead just kind of braids abrades against the muscle and you lose some weight but they stayed together and did really well so check that um out whether or not that sst has the rim i'm starting to think that it maybe does have the same interlock rim but most people report that they do 
tend to break up a little more easily than interlocks. I've had good luck for, oh gosh, probably since the 70s with interlocks. I don't know how long that bullet's been around, but I've used it a lot in a lot of calibers, and I think you'll do well with that one for sure. So there you go. Good luck on your uh, pig hunts, sandbar hunts, red deer, and all the rest. I still remember the feral hog hunting in Australia that I did in the early 2000s. Oh my goodness, there were pigs running everywhere. And I was using a 270 WSSM and it had just come out and we used a 140 grain XP3 bullet. And that was that super bullet from Winchester that had lead in the shank and then a, a copper nose that open pedals similar to the Barnes bullets. And that was just absolutely slamming those pigs. It was a great round for those. So good luck with your hunts. I, I envy you your opportunities over there in Australia. You guys have a lot of game and you know how to enjoy it. Well, that looks like the end of the questions for today, folks. Once again, I thank you for the corrections and for the new questions. I hope I got everything right. And I hope you are all enjoying your hand loading, your dreaming of your next rifle, your plotting and planning for the upcoming seasons. And here's wishing you all the best. Hunt honest and shoot straight.